welcome to a Wrestling House Show mini-episode covering nights 3 and 4 of New Japan Pro Wrestling's G1 Climax 29. My name is Chris, and tonight I'll be recapping the 10 tournament matches that took place during the second round of block matches in this year's G1 Climax. Starting in this episode, in the interest of time, I won't be talking about the tag preview matches that precede each night's tournament matches unless something big happens in one of those tag matches that needs to be highlighted. The tag previews tend to be fun, but anything relevant can be brought up when talking about the tournament matches themselves. And that way, I can cover two shows on each of these mini-sodes, and it will be much, much easier for me to keep up with these review shows and keep them as current as possible. If you would like to know any of my thoughts on the tag matches that take place during the G1, or if you just want a quick recap of every single match taking place during the G1 Climax Tour, go to cnjradio.com for my written recaps and reviews. Also, head over to cnjradio.com to listen to any of these minisodes that you might have missed. And now, without any further intros or explanations, on to the matches. Night 3 of the G1 Climax 29 took place at the Ota City General Gymnasium in Tokyo, Japan on July 14th, 2019 at 3pm Japanese Standard Time. The show featured 5 matches from A Block, and the block matches started off with Bad Luck Fale, who was accompanied by Jado versus Lance Archer. And as I expected, this was one of the shorter tournament matches, but I did not expect how fun this one was. Giotto, of course, had his kendo stick with him, and a well-timed strike from Giotto helped Fale get the early advantage in the match. Fale took the fight out to the floor, and he threw Archer about six rows deep into the chairs at ringside, and while this was going on, the commentators were talking about Fale's history in the G1 Climax, and they were saying how he was just trying to prove a point last year, and he ended up not getting pinned or submitted at all, but he got disqualified in six of his matches. This year, though, Fale does want to win, and I think that's definitely shown in the two matches he's had thus far in this year's tournament. He's pushed the rules to the limit, but he hasn't really pushed hard enough to warrant a DQ yet. And of course, Archer also came to win, and he's has been really impressive so far. I think it's interesting that Archer has now faced probably the smallest and the largest men in the whole tournament in his first two matches. I also think it's interesting that both Archer and Fale came into night three with a chance to go 2-0. and They are both on the cusp of being undefeated in the tournament so far. And after a short brawl in the crowd, Archer made it back to the ring and Fale sort of took over the match. Fale's offense was methodical, so the match did slow down a bit, but Archer would push back with some big impressive moves. Fale had Archer scouted though, and Giotto again helped Fale when Archer went to walk the ropes like he did against Osprey. That led to this giant second rope superplex from Fale that the referee sold Marty Asami ref this match, and he sold very well by jumping up in the air as they were landing and falling down to the mat. I thought that was great. And in the end though, Archer's EBD claw, the Everybody Dies claw, and a chokeslam prior to that claw was the deciding factor again and Archer heads into round 3 with a perfect 2-0 record. I think Archer might place pretty high in A block this year. I think Fale is going to be a spoiler throughout the tournament, but I think Archer could be up there with the top contenders in A block at least. The second A block match on night 3 was Sonata versus Will Ospreay. Sonata came into night 3 with a big win over Zack Sabre Jr. in the first round, and Osprey was still looking for his first two points ever in the G1 Climax. I think Osprey is probably the new best bout machine in New Japan ever since Kenny Omega left, 
and I've always really enjoyed Sonata's matches, so I was looking forward to this one. And thankfully, and expectedly, I guess, this match did not disappoint me. I think it was a great match from two guys that are sort of, in a way, on similar paths. Sonata has had title matches in the past before, but when he breaks away from LIJ for singles matches like this, I think he's right on the verge of breaking out and really moving up to the next tier on the New Japan roster. And clearly, Will Ospreay is already in the middle of his rise within the ranks. So, yeah, the match felt kind of important for a whole lot of reasons. One of the main things I really like about Sonata is how he adapts to whomever he's fighting. Against Saber, Sonata relied on his technical skills and managed to hang with one of the best technical masters in the world. And against Osprey, Sonata showed some of his Lucha Libre influence and met Osprey in the air with some high-flying moves of his own. Sonata didn't have much of an answer for Osprey's kicks, though, especially that brutal hook kick that Osprey likes to do over and over within matches. That hook kick caught Sonata several times throughout this match and helped Osprey take control when Sonata would kind of outmaneuver him a bit. I think the thing that really stood out to me about this match was how hard both men had to work to get just one move. For example, during one sequence later in the match, Sonata set Osprey up for a TKO, but they ended up countering each other over and over within the same sequence, so Sonata eventually got the TKO he was going for like a minute or so later, at least that's what it felt like. There were multiple sequences like that in this match, and I loved every bit of it. This was super fun to watch, plus I think it should shut down anyone out there who still thinks that guys like Osprey are all flash in terms of pro wrestling psychology. The work both men put into getting every single move in this match made every single move mean that much more. In addition to the really good psychology, Sonata and Osprey did have a little bit of fun early in the stages of this match. Osprey tried to put Sonata in the Paradise Lock, but Osprey couldn't figure out how to wrap Sonata's. He didn't know which arm to put over which leg first and which one went under, so Sonata easily escaped. A little later, Sonata put Osprey in the Paradise Lock, but Osprey immediately flipped forward and flipped up to his feet out of the Paradise Lock while Sonata was turning around and playing to the crowd. Sonata ended up doing what he did to Saber in their match. He tied up Osprey in a modified upside-down version of the Paradise Lock, using the bottom rope as a way to lock Osprey's hands and feet onto each other. I kind of hope that different versions of Sonata's Paradise Lock become a recurring theme for him, a motif, if you will, throughout the entire G1. In the end, though, Osprey got the victory over Sonata with a great series of moves that ended with Stormbreaker. And like I said, I like Sonata but I loved seeing Osprey get his first win ever in the G1 Climax on this night. The third A-block match pitted two champions against each other. It was the RPW British heavyweight champion Zack Sabre Jr. versus the IWGP heavyweight champion Kazuchika Okada. Now, Okada is always a favorite in any match he has, but I thought Sabre might get a win over Okada in this match. I think I said in the last episode that I thought that Sabre might have Okada's number. Of course, I guess I'm a bit biased because Sabre is one of my favorite wrestlers in the world right now, but Okada is up there on my list as well. He is not as high as Sabre, but he's in the conversation for sure. I just thought that Sabre might win this in an upset because of how Sabre was talking prior to this match. Sabre has beaten Okada one-on-one -on -one before, but like the commentators were saying, that was last year after Okada was struggling to find wins after losing the IWGP heavyweight title. 
Plus, that match was not in a New Japan ring. Uh, the biggest factor for me was that when Sabre had talked about the G1 over the past few weeks, he really only talked about this match. Sabre's goal wasn't necessarily to win the whole tournament, he just wanted to beat Okada and claim an IWGP heavyweight title shot simply because he beat the current champ. His plan was to do that and claim his title match at a big show, an NJPW show in England in August. And that way he'd have the home crowd advantage, plus he wouldn't have to wait all the way until January for Wrestle Kingdom. So I, was, I felt certain that Sabre was going to win. Unfortunately, he didn't. Okada won, but Sabre did push Okada to the limit and more or less proved that he can beat the heavyweight champ. As for the action, this match started out with a feeling out process, but Sabre quickly befuddled Okada with his wrestling brain. One of the best early holds that Sabre used was a modified banana split, and basically that's where Sabre forces his opponent to do the splits by assuming what is essentially a crucifix position, only he's centered behind Okada's butt rather than behind his shoulders. So he has his arms around one leg, his legs around the other leg, and he's pulling, basically. Okada wouldn't give up, so Sabre transitioned while still holding the banana split. He transitioned that into a pin, and then when that didn't work, he added a calf crusher to the whole ordeal. So Okada's doing the splits, and he's got a calf crusher on, so he was in pretty big trouble right away. Okada did get to the ropes, but the whole scenario there put Okada in danger throughout the rest of the match. A little later on, Sabre got cocky, as he often does, and he started toying with Okada. I say he often uses this to bait people into giving up a body part, but it works probably less often than it just backfires on him. Sabre got back into control of the match by countering a hip toss right into a royal octopus hold. And Sabre would apply a few different variations of the octopus while adding other things to it like a double wrist lock or anything else he could grab and twist while he was hanging on to Okada's back. Between a few of Sabre's holds though, Okada did hit Sabre with a pretty rough looking tombstone pile driver. Sabre recovered, but he kept having trouble with his right arm after that. The commentators wisely mentioned that the impact on Sabre's spine from the tombstone was doing the pins and needles things down his arm. And that definitely affected Sabre as the match went on. He kept kind of rubbing his arm and kind of trying to work out the pain. But one thing that really affected Okada was a gigantic slap from Sabre. The slap sent sweat flying and dropped Okada straight down to the mat. Sabre's confidence got the better of him though, and instead of really capitalizing on the moment, he tried to slap Okada some more. That seemed to just fire Okada up, and Okada mounted a comeback, which culminated in him finally hitting a couple variations of the Rainmaker for a victory. Despite being slightly disappointed that Sabre didn't win this match and get his title match in about a month or so, this was an extremely fun match to watch. Plus, I'm not mad that Okada won and is undefeated currently in two matches in the tournament. But moving on, the fourth A-block match on night three was Evil versus Kota Ibushi. Both men were coming into this match with disappointing losses during night one, but Ibushi had the added disappointment of having injured his ankle during the match with Kenta. I talked about the images that Ibushi posted of his swollen ankle on the previous episode, and he still seemed to be in pretty bad shape. In their preview match during night two, Evil repeatedly went after Ibushi's ankle, and tonight he pretty much picked up right where he left off. It seemed that Adrenaline helped push Ibushi to get into an extended strike exchange with Evil right as the match started, 
but Evil quickly moved to attacking Ibushi's ankle. Evil was methodical in his attack throughout pretty much the entirety of this match. Ibushi hit some kicks early and he still had a lot of energy, but you could see on his face and how he would step lightly with his left leg that he was hurting. Still, Ibushi went for some of his signature offense, including hitting a one-legged moonsault pretty early in the match. Evil would always take back control though, and one of the earliest big moves was a superplex from Evil to Ibushi. That seemed to fire Ibushi up, and after trading German suplexes with each other, Ibushi went into this zone where he leaned in and just started punishing Evil with strikes. Evil is never someone who will shy away from going cheap though, and so when Ibushi started to get fired up like that, Evil pushed Red Shoes, the referee, into Ibushi to stop his momentum. After a scorpion deathlock from Evil where he made a point to cross Ibushi's ankles over each other and put them right under his arm as he pressed down, Ibushi's last burst of offense was a pair of Bomayes to Evil. Bomaye being better known in America right now as the Kinshasa from Shinsuke Nakamura. Ibushi even leaned down in the corner like Nakamura does before he did it. It was pretty fun to see. Evil brought out his best offense and most energy right after that though. He was methodical up to this point, but after the Bomayes, then Evil kind of picked up his pace a bit too. And Evil did claim the victory with an STO. This wasn't my favorite match of the night so far, but it was still very good. More than anything, I think this match was about Ibushi's heart. Unfortunately, at this point, it kind of seems like Ibushi is going to struggle to get any wins in the tournament. I don't really see his ankle getting a whole lot better over the next few weeks with so many matches and so few breaks, so it already feels like his tournament might be over, especially after taking two losses right away. It's difficult to come back from in a block that has people like the IWGP heavyweight champion in it. A comeback is possible, but it kind of seems unlikely. So now, all of Ibushi's matches are going to be about pride and heart. That's what this match was mostly about. And sure, Evil got in the win column and that's cool, but the excitement in this match was all centered on whether or not Ibushi was going to physically be able to cope with his injury. And I have to say, I like this version of Ibushi pushing through pain more than some of the scary concussion moments he's had throughout the year in big matches. And the final A-block match on Night 3 was the New Japan newcomer Kenta versus the stalwart ace of New Japan, Hiroshi Tanahashi. Over the last few months, and really longer than that, Tanahashi has often been dealing with nagging injuries. That seemed like less of a factor in this match though, and although his elbow did seem to give him trouble late in the match, I think Tanahashi's distaste for Kenta and the way he wrestles distracted him from any pain that he might have in his body. Again, I think the commentators did a great job of setting the stage for this match. Katsuyori Shibata joined the Japanese commentary team prior to the match, and the English commentators talked about how Shibata had been in Tanahashi's corner when he won the G1 Climax last year. And of course, Shibata brought Kenta into New Japan and has been working with him since his departure from WWE, where he was Hideo Itami. Commentators also talked about how Tanahashi doesn't care for Kenta's hard, stiff style, and it kind of reminded me of how Tanahashi didn't like Kenny Omega's risk-taking style back in Wrestle Kingdom this year, and that sense of tradition within Tanahashi seems to be a recurring theme for him. Kenta isn't trying to make friends in the G1 though, and he showed Tanahashi zero respect in this match. Kenta opened the physicality in this match with a hard slap to Tanahashi's face. Tanahashi responded moments later with a slap of his own, and the tone of the match was set. 
They traded strikes in the middle of the ring, which is something I don't really remember seeing Tanahashi do a lot of. Tanahashi surprised me a little when he was the one who took the fight to the floor early in the match. I think the disrespect Kenta showed Tanahashi kind of pulled the ace into Kenta's style of match. Kenta started to pull ahead with some kicks and a big diving stomp, but Tanahashi stayed in the match by trying to weaken Kenta's kicks with multiple dragon screws. Kenta started trying to go for the go to sleep kind of early in the match, and Tanahashi was able to counter in a few different ways that really made Kenta pay each time he tried to do it. The repeated counter of the GTS made the move seem more intimidating though, and when Kenta finally did hit the move, it earned him the victory. So with this match, Kenta is at the top of A Block, along with Lance Archer and Okada as the three men who were undefeated in two matches. Tanahashi sits at the bottom of the block along with Zack Sabre Jr. and Kota Ibushi as the three men with two straight losses. Now I know it's early in the tournament still, but I would not have predicted the scenario at all. I do think it's interesting and it makes the block more exciting, and yeah, I guess some guys are going to by default underperform as far as points go since someone always has to lose, but it's pretty crazy to think that Sabre, Tanahashi, and Ibushi are all at the bottom with no points. So, after night 3 ended, the wrestlers all had to travel north from Tokyo to Sapporo, the capital city of Hokkaido, Japan. Night 4 took place in the Hokkaido Prefectural Sports Center on July 15th at 6pm. The first B-Block match on night 4 was Toru Yano vs Shingo Takagi. This was Yano's second tournament match in a row against a member of LIJ, and Takagi seemed to have been paying attention when Naito fell to Yano during night 2. Yano started the match wearing his shirt like he had put his shirt back on when he faced Naito, but Shingo insisted that Yano remove his shirt since he saw that t-shirts became a huge factor during Naito's match against Yano. As Yano pulled his shirt up over his head, that's when Shingo attacked. Yano escaped, but with his possible shirt plans foiled, Yano tried something more elaborate. Yano left the ring, but Shingo would not follow him at first. After Yano took a chair and sat down in the middle of the aisle, Shingo finally went after him. The ref started the 20 count, and Yano managed to get Shingo down on the floor. It was a drop toe hole to the chair that initially put Shingo down, and when Yano rushed back to the ring, he created this sort of obstacle course with the barricades, and he threw a table in front of the swinging gate on the second set of barricades, and Shingo barely made it back into the ring, but from then on, Shingo wrestled his own style of match. And by that, I mean Shingo hit Yano really, really hard many times. Yano at one point tried to pull an Eddie Guerrero by pretending that Shingo hit him with a chair, but it didn't work this time, and Shingo got his first two points in the tournament after hitting Yano with the Pumping Bomber Running Lariat. Yano's matches are fun, and the precedent he set with all of these shenanigans make his matches strangely tense. If anyone else did the things he does, I would never expect a pinfall to come out of it, but with Yano, I kind of always expect a pinfall. That made this match pretty exciting because any sort of pin attempt felt like it could be the one to end the match, and I really wanted Shingo to win tonight. He did, and now he can move forward with more confidence in the tournament. Match 2 on Night 4 featured two men looking to get their second win in a row. Hiroki Goto and Juice Robinson were both looking to pull ahead of the pack in this B-block match, but Juice seemed like he had something to prove as well. The commentators talked about some of Juice's losses to Goto in the past, and they also talked about how Juice came in last in his block last year in the G1 Climax. 
On top of that, Juice's attitude has changed somewhat ever since his dealings with Jon Moxley, so Juice had a lot going on in this match. Juice started off strong, and he wanted to face Goto head-to-head in the middle of the ring. Goto is clearly incredibly powerful, and it's not that Juice isn't strong as well, but Goto's attacks wore Juice down. One of the biggest factors early in the match was a draping neckbreaker delivered by Goto that really hurt Juice and put him in a bad position early in the match. Juice persisted though, and he traded blows with Goto throughout the match. Some of the lariats that they threw at each other were extremely hard, kind of like what Juice was doing with Shingo in his first match, and both men were showing the effects as the strikes just kept coming. Late in the match, Juice went for his left hand of God punch, but Goto blocked the punch with a headbutt. He blocked a punch with the top of his head. And then Juice immediately did the same thing to one of Goto's punches, and that kind of pushed Juice into a sequence of moves that ended with him hitting Pulp Friction and getting the win over Goto. This was a nice match, and even though I sort of halfway picked Goto to win B-Block when I was talking about him in the last episode, I was happy with this result. I want to see Juice full of confidence when he eventually meets Jon Moxley in their tournament match, and I think this was a good boost for Juice's confidence. The third B-Block match during Night 4 was a little bit of a surprise for me. It was the IWGP US champ Jon Moxley versus Jeff Cobb. Moxley came to the ring from the crowd like he's been doing in New Japan and like he did as Dean Ambrose as a member of the Shield, but unlike his last tournament match, Moxley came out first tonight. I think that way he couldn't be surprised like he was when Tai Chi attacked Moxley prior to their previous tournament match. His opponent tonight, Jeff Cobb, was in a physical war with Tomohiro Ishii in round one, so I kind of expected Cobb to come out fighting in this match. He did to a certain extent, but Moxley was able to keep Cobb from ever really building any momentum, especially any kind of momentum like Cobb had against Ishii. Whenever Moxley would get into trouble, he would take the fight out to the floor and brawl for a bit, and that's Moxley's strong suit, and it was a very smart move to do that. Moxley was also smart by focusing on Cobb's arm early in the match. That lessened the force behind Cobb's strikes, and it also hindered his ability to throw Moxley around the ring with any of Cobb's many suplexes. I think the combination of getting beat up by Ishii and dealing with a smart match from Moxley kept Cobb from ever really getting going in this match. Moxley kept looking for a knee trembler throughout the duration of the match, and he finally did hit one very solid on the side of Cobb's head late in the match. That set up Cobb for the Death Rider, otherwise known as Dirty Deeds, in another company, and Moxley got two more points while Cobb remained at zero. I'm not surprised that Moxley is doing well in the G1, but I guess Cobb is just another victim of circumstance and position right now. I expect he'll get some wins sooner rather than later, though. The next-to-last match from B-Block on Night 4 was Jay White, accompanied by Gato, versus the never-openweight champion Tomohiro Ishii. I talked about on the last episode how frustrating Jay White can be when he starts pulling some of his shenanigans, like in his match with Goto in the first round, and he tried the same sort of thing again tonight. Ishii was having none of White's nonsense, though. At least, at first he wasn't. White left the ring early in the match, like pretty much right after the bell, and he tried to get Ishii to join him on the floor where Gato was also lurking, but Ishii would not budge. After a while though, Ishii did leave the ring because the referees tend to not start the 20 count unless both wrestlers are outside, 
it's not really they don't want to see countouts so it's just a tool to get both of them back into the ring Ishii managed to avoid multiple distraction attempts from Gato and White, but Gato eventually did his part and annoyed Ishii enough to get him to break attention from Jay White. Back in the ring though, Ishii was pissed and fed up, and he started chopping White high, really high in the chest, and pretty much chopping him right straight in the throat. Ishii had White in the corner and refused to let him out until Red Shoes pretty much insisted. I think Ishii was pretty close to getting disqualified. White would come back with a huge DDT that was basically a pile driver. Ishii's body was straight up and down, landing on the top of his head. And from there, the match went back and forth a bit. It built up and up to a great finish that got the crowd buzzing louder and louder. And I love that kind of build throughout matches like this. As Ishii started hooking up and leaning into White's strikes... White started bringing back some of his annoying defense where he plays possum and refuses to get up. Ishii was building momentum and went for his sliding lariat late in the match, but White just fell over and smiled as Ishii and the crowd got even more frustrated. Ishii didn't let it get to him for long though, and he did find a way to hit the moves he wanted and put Jay White away after a very big brain buster. So Ishii is now 2-0 while White sits at the bottom of the block along with Jeff Cobb at 0 points. Like I said in the last episode, Jay White is a great bad guy because I really, really want to see him get beat. He treads the line between annoying and really good in this highly entertaining way. This match was really fun to watch. And finally, Night 4 of the G1 Climax 29 ended with an extremely entertaining match between Taichi and Tetsuya Naito. Naito underestimated Toru Yano in round 1, and I think he might have done the same with Taichi on this night. Taichi was accompanied by the lovely Miho Abe and the much less lovely Yoshinobu Kanemaru. So with two people in tow tonight, which is one more than he had with him in round one, you knew right away that Taichi had some pretty dastardly plans in mind. And boy did he have some plans. Taichi started the match by just trying to annoy Naito as much as possible. Taichi did what Naito did against Yano at the start of their match, and he refused to lock up in the middle of the ring. Naito remained tranquilo for a while, but after a few minutes of Tai Chi being Tai Chi at his most annoying, it seemed to get under Naito's skin a little. Tai Chi gained an advantage on the floor early in the match after using Miho Abe as a shield, and once Naito was sufficiently distracted and annoyed, Tai Chi started breaking out some actual really good moves. At one point, Tai Chi hit a combination of a gumanguri kick to the face and followed it up soon after with a spiking backdrop driver. That was a pattern for Tai Chi tonight. He would annoy Naito, which caused him to let his guard down, but then Tai Chi would hit Naito with some very powerful moves and he would string them together. It was a great mixture of rule breaking and just really great wrestling. Tai Chi really impressed me tonight. Of course, Tai Chi had some elaborate plans as well. At one point, he looked up the ramp and called for someone to come down to the ring. That caused Red Shoes to look up the ramp and send all of the young lions at ringside who were working as ring crew to block the rampway. It was, of course, a ruse, and Tai Chi tried to use the iron glove that was sort of left to him by the former Suzuki-gun stablemate Takashi Izuka. The glove looks kind of silly if you've never seen it. It's this silver rough looking thing that's basically four fat metal fingers that you slip over your own fingers. Naito avoided the glove initially, just as he avoided Kanemaru's Suntory Surprise, where he spits whiskey in people's eyes, but Tai Chi caused so much chaos that Naito eventually got struck by the iron glove and hit with a very large last ride, giving Tai Chi the upset victory. 
And if it seems like I'm mostly talking about Tai Chi and very little about Naito, it's because Tai Chi controlled this match pretty much the entire time. For the short time Naito was in control, Red Shoes was passed out on the mat, which is something that Tai Chi caused in the first place. Tai Chi was very strong tonight, and Naito was just trying to keep up. So now Tai Chi sits in the middle of the block along with three other guys, and Naito sits at the bottom along with Jay White and Jeff Cobb. It's definitely an interesting start to the tournament. And so that brings the second round of the G1 Climax 29 to an end. My favorite matches of this round include Sonata vs. Osprey, Sabre vs. Okada, and Kenta vs. Tanahashi during Night 3, and Jay White vs. Ishii and Taichi vs. Naito during Night 4. If you are at all intrigued by any of those matches, I suggest heading over to njpwworld.com and signing up to New Japan's streaming service. The service has gotten better and better over the years, and I spend as much or more time there as I do on the WWE Network. And depending on the exchange rate, the NJPW World is sometimes a little bit cheaper than WWE streaming service. It's 999 yen, but that's a little bit less than 999. No, I'm not making any advertising money for that plug. I just think the wrestling is great and the service is top notch. I've been using NJPW World pretty much since it started a few years ago, back when it was still all in Japanese and kind of hard to navigate. But everything is super simple now. So yeah, check it out and watch these matches. And just to wrap up, I know it's still early in the tournament, but I do think the blocks are starting to take shape. I won't really change any of my previous predictions as far as winners go. I still have hope that Ibushi can push through and make a comeback, but I think my second prediction of Kenta winning A block is a lot more likely now. And for B block, I'm still going with Goto, possibly, and a comeback for Naito, possibly. So yeah, I just picked 20% of the competitors to win, but hey, predictions are hard. But you can find out my ever-growing list of predictions on future minisodes of the Wrestling House Show, and you can find all of those shows on cnjradio.com, the home of the Wrestling House Show and the home of the CNJ Radio family of podcasts. Check us out on Twitter at House Show and interact on our Facebook. For now, I'm going to head off to prepare for round three of the G1. So until next time, bye.